Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I am your host, Amelia Allen, and I am so glad to have you here. Just a little housekeeping note, if you have not already, please follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, part of why I do this podcast is to get information out about these cases that people have not heard of and to help keep knowledge about cold cases out there. So the way that you can help is by leaving a rating or review on your podcast platform and let people continue to find Altitude Crime. So today's episode is going to be short and sweet, but the great thing about it it is a 21-year-old cold case I can actually tell you an ending to. And this case was actually brought to my attention by my mom. So thanks, mom, for bringing this one up. It's definitely a really interesting case. So what do you think about when you think about a hospital? Okay, besides COVID-19 right now. You think of somewhere you go to get better when you're ill or you're hurt. Or maybe you think of it as a place you go to work to help other people and pursue your profession. What you don't think of is finding a woman whose life has been taken far too soon and a case that would take 21 years to solve. On November 8th, 1999, two elevator personnel from Dover Elevator Service had gone into Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs to repair an elevator shaft located on the eighth floor of the hospital. A pretty routine day for these elevator service personnel. The part of the building that they were entering was actually under construction, but the stairwell that they were working in also led to the helicopter pad at Memorial Hospital. Once they were inside the stairwell that led to the elevator shaft they needed to work on, the two noticed a distinctive smell. In that stairwell, they would find a body of a woman wrapped in a sheet and then construction plastic and duct tape shut. The body would be identified as 23-year-old Jennifer Watkins, who had been reported as a missing person three days earlier. Jennifer Lee Watkins, whose maiden name was Skinner, was born on November 24, 1975. Jennifer had three siblings, and she was the second oldest of the four children. She graduated from Hanover High School in Hanover, Colorado, where she played clarinet in the school band and also really liked to play volleyball. Jennifer liked to help people, and it was her goal to become a nurse. She started to attend Barnes Business College in Denver, And around this time, she reconnected with grade school acquaintance Michael Watkins, and the two moved in together and eventually got married. About three years into their marriage, Michael got a job working in the maintenance department at Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. And this is when Jennifer also got her job at the hospital as a food service aide in the dietitian department. Jennifer also had two children at the time, three-year-old Michael Jr. and 11-month-old Mariah. So let's step back a few days in this case to November 5th. Jennifer's family was immediately alarmed that day when she didn't come to her mother's house after her shift. Her mother took care of her two children while she was at work, 
and on November 5th, she never came to pick them up after she was done with work. Jennifer's husband, Michael, called to report her missing that night. Michael would help police search for her car, which would eventually be found still in the Memorial Hospital parking lot. Investigators checked her car, but it would bring forward no clues. Once Jennifer's body was found three days later in the stairwell on November 8th, there were a lot of good leads for investigators to go off of. Her death was immediately ruled a homicide, and there was signs that she had been sexually assaulted. Evidence also showed that Jennifer had died from blunt force trauma to the head. But the killer left some pieces of himself behind. There was semen found on Jennifer's pants and on the plastic wrap used on her body. And additional semen from a different man was also found during the course of the autopsy. Investigators were also able to collect hair and fiber evidence at the scene, most likely belonging to Jennifer's killer. As to be expected, Jennifer's husband, Michael, needed to be ruled in or out first. He cooperated with investigators throughout all questioning after Jennifer's body was found. But Michael also didn't do himself any favors. The union between he and Jennifer was not an easy one, as Michael had a penchant for drugs, and the relationship started to include frequent domestic abuse, even sending Jennifer into the ER multiple times. No sources that I found specifically say that Michael was ever ruled out, but he was also never labeled a person of interest either. Despite having a ton of DNA at this scene, investigators really got no good leads to go on, and Jennifer's case eventually went cold. Jennifer's case would sit for almost 20 years until investigators reached out to Parabon Nano Labs, who started working the case around 2017 and 2018. According to Parabon's website, they, quote, develop next-generation therapeutic and forensic products by leveraging the enormous power of DNA, unquote. Parabon utilizes genetic genealogy, DNA phenotyping, and kinship inference to identify suspects. Kinship inference can identify familial relations out to six degrees of relatedness. According to their website, since they started offering genetic genealogy in May 2018, Parabon has identified over 170 persons of interest in cases across the country. And Parabon has been really integral to helping close a few cold cases in Colorado, including another case from Colorado Springs and Grand Junction in 2020. Another DNA profile was created in 2019 from the semen found at the scene from the additional mail, and this information was sent to Parabon. They were able to match the second set of semen to Jennifer's husband, Michael, which investigators expected to find at some point given that they were married. The real break in the case came from phenotyping that was done on the semen that was found on Jennifer's pants. Through phenotyping, Parabon is able to pick out specific DNA traits, rather than just trying to find a straight match for all of the DNA markers. This can determine physical traits from DNA, like hair and eye color, body weight, skin color, etc. Through these physical traits, Parabon is then able to create a possible composite of the suspect. When Parabon did phenotyping on this specific sample, they were able to deduce that the suspect was of Northern European descent and was most likely fair-skinned with either blue or green eyes or blonde or brown hair. 
The lab also suggested that the suspect was around 25 years old at the time of the murder. And if you look at the composite to who their suspect ended up being, it's pretty accurate. If you want to check it out, go to the CBS4 Denver article that I have listed on the sources on altitudecrime.com. Once Parabon had a phenotype to go off of, they used genetic genealogy to find a suspect through public ancestry databases. In August 2020, Colorado Springs Police Department would have a name, Ricky Sievert. This was not the first time police had heard of Ricky Sievert's name. Sievert had been originally interviewed on November 19, 1999, when he was 29 years old. Sievert had started working at Memorial Hospital in April 1998 and worked in the maintenance department there. He was actually at work on a swing shift November 5th, the same day that Jennifer was last seen. In questioning with investigators, Sievert had said that he had not seen Jennifer that day. However, police would not get the chance to question Sievert about Jennifer's murder. In a twist of karma, Sievert had died in a car accident 19 years earlier on November 2, 2001. The fatal accident took place east of Colorado Springs on Highway 94. Relatives of Sievert did agree to give their DNA to be tested. And the CBI's results show that the testing did not rule out Seaver as the possible murderer. The DNA match testing was strong and ruled out 99.99994% of the population, but not ruling out Ricky Seaver. The CBA's confidence in this DNA testing was seconded by the 4th Judicial District Attorney, as they also believed that Ricky Seaver was responsible for the murder of Jennifer Watkins. Jennifer's case was closed on October 1st, 2020, and has now been changed to the status of exceptionally cleared slash death of offender. Okay, guys, I told you this one was short and sweet, but it doesn't mean that I don't have thoughts on it. Musing number one, I will tell you my biggest red flag in this entire case is that I don't love that it took three days to find her body in a hospital where she was last seen, where she worked. That's also a hospital where sick people are and stuff. And there's like a decomposing body in the building. Like being in a construction area or not, that just strikes really gross and really bad with me. I couldn't find any information on if the hospital was searched immediately or not, but I would think that would be the first thing you would do. So I'm I'm not sure if a search occurred and the body was dumped later and they just didn't find it, or if that throw of a search was just never done. Musing number two, I kind of look at this case as one of those that maybe Sievert killed her out of passion or it was something he didn't expect to happen. But whether it was that or it was something that was planned, he clearly had no plan in how to get rid of her body. That being said, it still took 21 years to solve this case. So he did something right there. But it seems like there was some poor planning on the execution of her murder. Musing number three. I don't know if you caught on earlier, But Michael Watkins, Jennifer's husband, and Ricky Sievert worked in the same department. They worked in the maintenance department at Memorial Hospital. And this does strike me a little weird. 
So you could read this as that Michael could have some kind of involvement and you do have his semen found on her body, which is easily explainable by the fact that they were husband and wife and most likely sexually active. But it does strike a little bit of an odd question in your brain. I'm more in the camp that Michael wasn't involved just because I don't think he would have reported Jennifer missing so quickly if he had. We oftentimes see if a spouse is involved or say a father in the case of Dylan and Mark Redwine that they tend to wait a little bit to buy a little time before reporting the person missing. So I believe that Ricky Sievert was the only one involved from what information I have to go off of. Musing number four. So you may be asking, why are all cases being looked into like this? Why isn't just all information going to Parabon and we use this upcoming technology to just start knocking out cold cases? My answer for you is money. It still costs money to be able to do this testing and to be able to have these people sit there every day and go through this data and through this information. So as much as I would love to say we could just throw all cold cases there, it's still going to take time to get those figured out and get them solved and get the money to get them solved. Musing number five, just in case you were curious, As of year end of 2020, there were less than 100 cold cases still waiting to be solved by Colorado Springs Police Department. And some of those cold cases dated back to 1949. And I have to say, I think that's kind of impressive. Less than 100 seems like a pretty minute number in the scheme of how many crimes happen over the years, especially dating back as far back to the 40s. I know that's of no consolation to those families that are waiting for those answers, but I do have to say as someone who is a resident of Colorado Springs, that does make me proud of the police force, that they're at least trying to find some answers and maybe right some wrongs in investigations that maybe weren't handled properly the first go around. Okay, everyone. Well, thanks for tuning in for what was a short story, but I'm so glad I can finally give you one that was a cold case for so long and actually got solved. It's always a fantastic feeling to know that there are some answers, although I know it does never give complete closure to the families, but I hope that this did provide Jennifer's family with some sort of closure. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on your favorite podcast platform. And please connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. If you have a suggestion for a case, let me know. I want to hear about it. And as always, you can find source materials and the link to merch on AltitudeCrime.com. Thank you so much for spending this part of your week with me, and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 24 A Cold Case I Can Tell an Ending to, Jennifer Watkins, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.